You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So you might remember Paul is saying, I have no problems repeating myself because it's good for you and it gives me great joy. I know this isn't going to be on the screen for you, so this is in the moment. Verse 2 gives us instruction. Look out for the dogs, heavy, heavy word. Look out for the evildoers, another heavy word. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, those destroyers. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Great phrase, no confidence in the flesh. Now verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, you can just kind of feel Paul's sarcasm right here, right? If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a massive statement. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this specific word to us this morning. We beg you, Father, to come and do a work among us through the preaching of your word that we might hear your word and be moved to worship you, to surrender to you, to lay down our striving, to lay down our work, to lay down our rules, to lay down our filthy rags at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb as we hold on to the hope of heaven. We beg you, Father, to come do that work of transformation in us trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You might be familiar with these words uh, from a popular tune. Anything you can do, I can do better. (laughs) Anything you can do, I can do better. I think I remember those words from uh, from a movie called Annie. Anything you can do, I can do better. These words uh, from that song, I think, sum up the rat race of life pretty well. 
interesting to me that in the song that we sang in worship uh, this morning, In Christ Alone, said that from life's first cry to final breath, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. From the moment that we're born until the day that we die, we are thrust into what I would call a rat race. It's It's a race against time, really. With death as what feels like the finish line. We feel the pressure of death all around us, I think, on a daily basis. Motivates us to work harder, motivates us to accomplish more, motivates us to achieve success. Even if we don't recognize it, I think it's an unspoken motivator. We work for our paychecks. We labor for uh, healthier, more sculpted bodies. We try to build our public image. We stress over the dysfunction in our families. We, we fight against addictions of all kinds. Even if you've never jabbed a vein, you still have addiction, addiction tendencies. We scrutinize our bank accounts. We, we try to bolster our resumes, make ourselves look good. The reality is that death is coming for us from the moment that we're born. We know that instinctively, and what we really want is the dash between those two dates to boast of our significance somehow. It's a desire that every one of us has. We long to have lived lives that had some kind of meaning, and leave some kind of legacy. So ask yourself this question. You might write this down. I think it should be on the screen for you here in a moment. What do you want deposited? Intentional word. What do you want deposited between the dates of your birth and your death? What is it that you want deposited in between the the dash? That dash that's in between your birth and your death. He was a great father. She was a loved mother. He was a successful businessman. She was a gifted entrepreneur. He always knew what to say. Her wealth helped millions. His artwork can be found all around town. Her political influence was strong. His uh, community projects will benefit generations to come. Their kids were absolute geniuses. Their legacy is not going to be forgotten. Such is the resume, at least portions of the resume, that many of us long for. We long for things like that to fill in that little itty-bitty dash between the dates of our birth and our death. And here's the thing. While the pursuit of good things, those are all good things, while the pursuit of good things is a good thing, when those good things become ultimate things, uh, superior things, I would say, then they become destructive things. And this is 
This is the concern that the Apostle Paul has for the Philippian church. He wants the Philippians to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of what? The gospel. For them to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And he knows that no other thing is going to hinder them from doing so, quite like the threat of legalism, which is what Paul is addressing head on in these first nine verses of chapter 3. Nothing will hinder them quite like the threat of legalism. Basically, if you want to sum up what the threat of legalism is, the threat of legalism is that Jesus plus something equals everything. Jesus plus something equals everything. You might remember that. Nothing will hinder the spiritual vitality of a believer quite like the superiority of legalism. This is why the Apostle Paul spoke so boldly in the first three verses of this chapter. He exhorted the Philippians to do what? Uh, My summary, to rejoice in the Lord. Not to rejoice in anything else, but to rejoice in the Lord because it would last. To keep watch for legalists. He called them dogs, lawbreakers, mutilators. And to remain confident in who and whose they are. Remember that who you are is dictated by whose you are. See, for the Philippians to uh, live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, these Philippians and us, I would argue, need to be reminded that it's not Jesus plus something that equals everything, but it's actually Jesus plus absolutely nothing that equals everything. It's a play on words. Because really, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You can't add to the value that Jesus gives you at the cross. You just can't. The problem is that we are hardwired by sin to constantly live in a state where we actually believe, deep down inside, that something that we do is part of His saving work in us. Whether it's either to earn the salvation or to prove the salvation. The Philippians and us, they need a lesson in what actually is superior and what is not superior. This is why the Apostle Paul begins with his superior resume. And then from there he moves on to his superior account. Those will be the kind of the two breakouts walks through his superior resume, then walks through his superior accounts. Take a look at the first one here in verses 4 through 6. Look back at the text with me for a minute. Look at what he says. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. <laughs> if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. There are seven key things that he has on his resume. Seven bullet points on his resume that he has in his pocket so he can prove to you that he's good enough. It's one heck of a list, really, don't you think? One heck of a list. One one heck of a list of credentials. And notice what Paul is doing here. 
Um, he, when he begins, he basically begins by saying that his resume is superior to anyone else's. And basically what he's saying here, you could summarize by saying, hey, top this if you think you can. You want to come into my church and preach legalism? Uh, let's, let's just see if, uh, if you can come anywhere close to the high-level resume of holiness that I can list out for you. Because if you think you're better, I'm better than you. What are you saying? Top this if you think you can, you crazy legalists. And what does he do? He launches into this detailed description of his resume. On his resume, he boasts seven things. Four of them, the first four, are inherited privileges. So you could write that down if you want. They're inherited privileges, things that he inherited by nature of his birth, by nature of his name. Three, the last three, are personal achievements. Going to work through them quick. So there's four inherited privileges, three personal achievements. But I want you to think about this in terms of your life. Think about some of the things that you have inherited from birth that give your life some kind of meaning or some kind of value. Things like a good family. Things like a good education. For all of us, maybe... Maybe all of us, maybe not all of us, but things like being born in America. These are things that we have as uh, inherited privileges from birth. Now, I'm, I'm using the word privileges in a way that I hope has not been stripped of its meaning like has happened in our culture around us. So please don't get hung up on a use of a word that our culture is stripped of its meaning. I aim to give biblical meaning back to words that get prostrated. Prostrated, and no. Prostituted, that was the word I was looking for. Got your attention now, right? Oh. Look at what the Apostle Paul lists first. He lists four inherited privileges under the, these chart-topping headlines. He's got four of them. Circumcised, Israelite, Benjamin, Hebrew. There's not many of us in the room that probably read those words and go, oh, well, that's, uh, that's awesome. Wow, Paul, you, you blew me out of the water. We read those words and we kind of skip by them. But here's the reality, those words, the, those bullet points on his resume held a lot of weight in his culture. What he's doing is he's pointing, number one, to his religion when he says circumcised. This is the kind of religion I am, the superior religion. Okay? He points to his ethnicity. I'm an Israelite, chosen by God, would have been in that culture. That's the way it would have come across. His nationality is he's a Benjaminite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. That's his nationality. Uh, Benjamin was the only tribe out of all 12 tribes that was obedient. So just that's the thrust of that feeling. My family is better than yours. My church is better than yours. My denomination is better than yours. My country is better than yours. What he's saying. You feel the weight of this now? You feel the momentous occasion for us at this time now? That God would choose this passage for us? How about his education? His education was wrapped up in that term Hebrew, which dovetails into the next portion uh, in his accomplishments. To be a Hebrew of Hebrews meant that he graduated from the Ivy League. That's what that meant in terms of education. 
if you think you could talk to Paul, uh, you would need to understand that he was way out of your league. Way out of your league. And these legalists that were coming into the church, preaching things, prostituting scriptures and the gospel, <laughs> they didn't even hold a candle to the flame that was Paul. Okay? If some legalist there thought he could boast, uh, Paul had him beat. And he had him beat in the first four points, but Paul's like, I'm going to heap some more on just for you. I already got you beat with the inherited privileges that I have. Let me just heap on some of my own personal accomplishments for you. Here's the accomplishments. Again, I call them like chart-topping personal achievements. These things would leave most legalists, most church people in Paul's day sucking their thumb in the corner. You, just, you, you don't come close to this in terms of accomplishing things. And literally, he had accomplished more than 99% of his opponents could ever hope to achieve. Let me ask you this question before I go there. What do you hope to achieve in this life? What do you hope to achieve? And, and in that achievement, how much do you hain the well-being and the value and the meaning of your life on achieving that? It might be easy to go, oh, pastor, I get it. No, I, 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 wouldn't, I don't do that. I, Jesus first. I'm here, right? It's Sunday. I came to the cleanup day. <laughs> you know, I go to GC too. And I don't smoke. Whatever. Right? You see what I'm doing? Start making the list. This is what we do. We make lists. Pull them out of our pocket. You want to talk? Got your one. Got a resume? I got my list. But what is it that you uh, hope to achieve with your life that you think is going to give it some kind of meaning? It's what captures your attention. Again, you can pursue good things. When good things become ultimate things, even good and godly things become ultimate things. The Pharisees had this down pat. Okay, seriously. In between the Old and the New Testament um, was this thing called the, the, whole, the whole thing with Maccabees. Right? The bad guys, we'll, just, we'll put this in simple language. The bad guys came in, started roasting pigs on the altar in the temple. That, that, that's blaspheming God. The priests in the temple, Maccabees, and all his buddies got their spears and their swords. These guys were good Christian dudes, pastors. They took out the bad guys. They killed them for their evilness. And then after that revolt happened, there was actually peace in the land for like 10 or 15 years, something like that. Out of that revolt of the Maccabees, you do the, do the history, what comes out of the Maccabees into the New Testament, when the New Testament opens, it opens on the hinges of that, sets the stage for the New Testament. What you get there is you get four streams within Christianity in biblical history. You get the Pharisees, who were the top of the top. They were, they were the purest and the cleanest, okay? You get the Sadducees, who basically didn't believe there was any resurrection of the dead. And then you get these guys who were the Essenes, who like lived way out in the wilderness and ate lots of locusts and honey. Okay? A lot of people think John the Baptist was them. Um, Micah, Riley, and I probably would have been Essenes part of the time. Because the other part of the time, I would have been a Pharisee, because I love my Bible. And I love to prove that I'm right. So that was Pharisees. So you got Pharisees, you got Sadducees, you got Essenes. The last one was your Zealots. I would have been a Zealot the other half, third of the time. The zealots, man, they're swords. They're, they're undercover swords. You know, they're, they're concealed carry swords. 
if anybody came after him. Death, death to the bad guys. So those four, that, that, that is the backdrop of Christianity that Jesus steps into and that Paul is ministering in months. Just to give you that, to understand the culture, I ask that question one more time. What do you hope to achieve in this life that you believe is going to give your life some meaning, that's going to push you to the next level? Here's the thing. Here's what Paul says. Three things about himself. His personal accomplishments that are now on top of his inherited privileges. First thing he says, I'm a Pharisee. What does that mean? It means that he was a separated one. It's interesting, the the name The meaning of the name Pharisee in the Greek is that, separated. I am separate from all the filthy stuff in this world. Separatists. Homeschoolers, please forgive me. I was homeschooled too. Um, Homeschoolers probably would have fit in this camp. I know the homeschoolers we have here are like radical homeschoolers, so that's fine. Make the argument all you want. But homeschoolers would have been in this camp. Separatists. We're going to separate from the world. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't homeschool. Please don't hear me wrong. I shouldn't have been homeschooled for other reasons. This would have been the easy place to fall into. Paul was proud of this at one point in his life. He had separated himself from the world, separated from the filth of this world. Second thing he mentions is that he was a zealous persecutor or a religious terrorist. I'd probably call him a a religious terrorist. Um, He persecuted the early church. Basically, for Paul, he uh, was taking up the mantle or the calling of Phineas. You might remember Phineas, if you were with us for our Joshua series, right? Last three sermons of Joshua got us all out of sorts. You might remember that. Um, Had to do with Phineas and his religious zeal. Paul would have believed that he was following in the footsteps of Phineas, a man who was ready to go to war fast. You look at that in Numbers 25 and Joshua 22. So that's the second thing for Paul here that he'd accomplished. Third of his achievements is that he was blameless. That's a, that's a big one. Blameless in everything <coughs> under the law. So what does that mean? It means that he followed the letter of the law in regard to performing rituals for forgiveness and purification. He went to church on time. He went to gospel community on time. He also did all the festivals. The one the day that the church doors were open that he wasn't there. Basically, that's the way it would come down to, as well as any other purification rituals or forgiveness rituals they needed to do in his home. Devotions day and night, prayer time day and night. Did it. Did it. Got all of us beat. Easy. I had a guy tell me the other day, I mentioned him, I was like, man, I'd I did devotions with my kids about four times this last week. The other three days, couldn't get it done. He's like, you know, that's, that's 99.9% better than most people in this world that call themselves Christians. And I'm like, yeah, but I was never really in that moment talking about trying to measure myself up against other Christians. I was just saying I did it four times this week, and I'm, I'm like thankful. But that was in that moment. You know how many times I'm like, frick, I did it four times this week. I wish half the people in my church would do that. That's my own confession, so... That's called legalism. That's called. That's called looking down my nose pridefully at other people because they don't measure up to the standard that I have set that I now call God's word. Because the Bible said it. Right? So, Paul, 
Paul has accomplished quite a bit. On top of that, blameless. Paul knew what it meant to rely on the law to make him right with God, or like I said earlier, to prove that he was right with God. I think oftentimes when we think about legalism, we typically think about it in this one vein because the American church has done really good at preaching this to the detriment of the other. Uh, the American church has done really good at preaching um, don't do works to earn your salvation. It's, it's by grace through faith. Yes, true, amen, signed, sealed, delivered to the detriment of forgetting about how we like to prove that we're in the club. Right? We like to wear the t-shirt that says, look at me, I'm in. Um, gives us meaning. It makes us feel a part of. Makes us feel accomplished. Also, makes us feel more superior than others. This is why we don't enter in to the mess of others' lives. That's why, why we have a hard time doing that. It's, it's why, <clears throat> it's why as a, how do I put this? Because you can't do that from the stage when you're a preacher. Um, it's why when I watch uh, TV and I watch certain political parties doing certain things, I get ticked and I look down my nose at those people in that other political party. Right? That's why I do that. There's a healthy side of that where you, where you can legitimately and rightly call out evil and say, that's evil. But to look down the nose at someone, that's called pride, arrogance, and it stems out of legalism, which says somehow, I got this right, and you suck, you don't. Paul knew what it was like to rely on the law to make him right with God, which again, the make us right with God part, we preach against that well in the church, but it's the proving part to prove that I'm in. That's the part I think we've missed. And it's such a subtle thing, you know? such a subtle thing. So once again, Paul's resume uh, is astoundingly superior to anything that anyone else could possibly come up with, right? His, his resume, Paul's resume, made him look like a man of extreme focus, a man of extreme confidence, a man of extreme self-mastery. This was no flake of a man. <clears throat> who wouldn't want this resume in their backpack? Who wouldn't want this resume on their headstone? I mean, I want it. I'd like that to be there. It's pretty accomplished. <clears throat> Basically, at the end of the day, uh, culture has taught us, and we have intrinsically believed this, that someone with this kind of a resume... This is the person that gets the job, gets the girl, gets noticed, gets into the family, typically possesses a really nice bank account, too. At least a decent one, right? Because you've worked to earn that. You've worked to produce that. Your labor has made that happen. Hey, this is the reason people have a hard time tithing. Just, it's got nothing to do with the tax, but because we're going to bank accounts, it does, because we're going to talk about accounts. So, we're going to talk about accounting for a minute. The reason that we have such a hard time tithing is because I earned that money. I earned that money. How dare you tell me the church needs that money? And the problem is, is that we, we misappropriate the fact that, hey, God's the one who gave you the ability to do the work. And he also provided the job for you. And you got a problem giving him what he asked for? Your problem is with God. Makes sense? It's an accounting issue. We have put things in our account that don't belong there, namely the presence of self. I earned that. <coughs> Who would not want this list of 
privileges and accomplishments in their pocket. Because if you got that in your pocket, you get a good account. Oh, yeah. Look at Paul's account. He uh, lines his, outlines his superior account, verses 7 through 9. It's interesting because really what he does is he flips the switch. You all know that because we already read it. <coughs> Listen to the way he says it. Whatever gain I had, gain, it's an accounting term. I counted, another accounting term, as loss, another accounting term. The actual Greek used here, it's accounting language. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Summary. Paul is saying that his spiritual bank account is a superior account simply because he had wadded up his quote-unquote superior resume and he tossed it in the trash like the rubbish that it really was. Paul knew. Paul knew that what appeared to be a full account because of his inherited privileges and his personal achievements was actually simply a bankrupt account in need of an eternal deposit. This eternal deposit that Paul is speaking of here, this is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And look at the phrase that, that Paul used. It's a fascinating phrase when he, he literally calls Jesus, my Lord, my Yahweh. That's the personal name for the Lord. And he's referencing the fact that Jesus is the one who fills his wants, bankrupt account, for all appearances. With his resume, his account appeared previously to be overflowing. But the reality, Paul is saying, appearances aren't what they are. My account was not overflowing then. It was empty. And now it's overflowing because I have filled it with Christ Jesus, my Lord. My Lord. <clears throat> no Jew then would refer to Yahweh that way would not call Yahweh my Yahweh. Um, it was a dangerous statement to make, to say that they had a personal relationship with the Lord that way, to use that name. Sure, there were a few that would. Traditionally, though, to make that statement was a very outlandish statement because there's no other more personal name for Jesus than that name. And when Paul uses that special name, what he's claiming is that he knows Jesus intimately so can i ask you do you know jesus intimately it's the question that most of you that have been tracking with us for a long time you know i love to ask this question what has jesus been speaking to you oftentimes this is this is close to what abe was pointing out earlier oftentimes we want to say something like well he's just showing me how bad things are in the world today yeah can you get past that and get down inside of you well i'm really frustrated about how bad things are in the world today okay now talk about talk about that frustration well, I'm frustrated because it's evil. Okay, true, I agree with that. Why does that frustrate you so much? Do you, you don't trust that God can handle that? Or is it that you have lost all your comfort? Because And only when that gets fixed out there, only then will you be comfortable then? Only then will you be able to sleep at night? 
So the point is, is you're trying to turn that around so we're not just so outwardly focused, like the Pharisees, like the legalists, that we become internally focused on heart change and heart transformation. It's knowing Jesus intimately. What has Jesus been saying to you? Like really, is there anything, is there any pursuit, any good pursuit in this world that could be gained in this life that could even hold a candle to a vibrant relationship with Jesus? And quit telling me that everything that you do good in the world is just proof that you're a good Christian and you know Jesus. That's called legalism, my friends. When was the last time you heard Jesus speak to you about you and his fatherly care and love for you, even his rebuke and correction of you? When? And what did he say? Let's hear it. Again, notice the the mathematical accounting terms that uh, Paul is using here. He uses all these mathematical terms, right? Gain, loss, worth. He uses those terms to describe his superior account, his relationship with Jesus. And Paul was overjoyed at the concept of losing his superior resume, overjoyed at that fact. I'm I'm happy to lose that. (laughs) Overjoyed to get rid of that list, because that list is a heavy weight to carry. Because here's the thing, as soon as you don't live up to that resume that you carry around in your pocket, you know what's going to happen. It's the other side of pride where you get insecure and you start working hard for it. Because one side of pride is this boastful arrogance. Look at me, blah, 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 blah. The other side is this insecure where every time you show up, it's like, oh, I failed again. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I suck. I'm, I'm no good. You guys don't even deserve me. That's a prideful insecurity. And all, it, all it's based on is you and your performance. Eh. Can I just be honest, like, do we really want to build a culture in our church where it's all about our performance, whether good or bad? Like, I I don't. Definitely want to see holiness in people. Definitely want to see that, right? Like, live rightly. Let the Spirit of God enable you and empower you to do so. I don't want to live in that prideful place. Insecure or arrogant pride. Paul is overjoyed at the concept of losing this resume so he could gain the credit of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as his Lord and Savior. See, in Paul's mind, all of his inherited privileges, all of his earthly achievements, accomplishments, all of those things could never hold a candle to the flame of his relationship with Jesus. How did he know that? Not because he studied it under a dude named Gamaliel, who was the top Ivy League teacher. He didn't know that because of that. He knew that because Jesus was in his spiritual bank account. And he knew that Jesus was in fact superior to anything that his legalistic opponents had to offer him. Paul was no longer depending on or boasting in his self-righteousness. He was depending on and boasting in Christ's righteousness through faith. A passage that uh, uh, Abe used this morning in our time of prayer before he got up and emceed. I mentioned this last week. It'd be crazy if pastor and MCs would actually collaborate a little bit to get the Spirit of God moving so there was some syncing up between passages. Sorry, never happens. Don't do my job that well, but you know, the Holy Spirit still does His. When we talk about this righteousness that is given to us by faith, 
that righteousness, according to 1 John 2, is basically two things, two really great big words that I love. So let me flex my theological muscles for you and make myself look good. Write them down because they're fun to check out. Propitiation and expiation. Propitiation and expiation. Doesn't matter if you can't spell it. There's a P and there's an E. One of them means that God's going to cover your sin. The other one means God's going to remove your sin. Put them both together. You have a complete salvation that takes place in your life as Jesus gives you his righteousness and then takes all of your filthy rags and puts it on himself at the cross. That's the whole picture of the gospel right there. You didn't deserve him to cover your sin. You didn't deserve him to remove your sin. What you deserve was hell. What I deserved was hell, even if you didn't. I know that I did. Jesus, and by the grace and the mercy of our Father in heaven, went to the cross, bore the shame, bore the guilt, covered our sin, removed our sin completely. Therefore, we're no longer sinners, we're now saints. And actually, in, in this day, we're both. And the moment we get into heaven, we're completely transformed into saints. But in front of God right now, he looks at you, he doesn't see you as a sinner, he sees you as a saint if you trust in him. Perfect. But you're still living in the flesh, so you're still a sinner too. Like it's, a, it's an already not yet, a now and later kind of a thing. This is the message of the gospel. This is what it means to have righteousness given to us through faith. So, question. My time is up. Almost. Why does this matter, right? Like, when, I always ask that question. What difference is it going to make? Just so y'all know, I don't just ask this question in Bible exposition, Bible preaching, and Bible interpretation. I ask this question of everything. <clears throat> when somebody show me a video, I want to know, why, why does that matter? Like, is there some significance to that? What difference is it going to make? What difference was it meant to make? I ask that question because it's an application question. It's far too easy. I notice this like even in my seminary studies. Far too easy to get up on those discussion boards and be arguing all sorts of things like, you know, predestination and non-predestination and are you saved, once saved, always saved, yada, yada. I know where I land. Y'all know where I land. Go look at our faith statement, right? But it's really easy and fun. Just like so getting these theological arguments like, well, you know, the meaning of the word means this and we've got that and we got this. And at the end of the day, like, who flipping really cares if you can explain that? Like, tell me what Jesus has been doing in your life. Tell me that. What difference does this make? I think it's, um, I think, it's really hard to admit when you've begun to think of yourself as more superior than someone else. And part of my job as a preacher is to stand in front of you and in some regard embody the text. So embody at times some of the worst ends of the text so you can see it on display and feel it emotionally. The other part is for me to embody maybe what it looks like to do this healthily, which is an interesting part of preaching and communication. Um, so to be a living example as much as I can. Um, and when the Apostle Paul says, hey, come follow me as I follow Jesus, and, and you look at the way that Paul talks honestly about his own sin, and then also in the same breath, like, calls people, hey, trust in God. Like, there is no condemnation for you. It's interesting. I say all that to say that I also think it's really hard. And it's been hard for me as I studied the last two weeks to study these path, this passage and I like find anywhere in my life where I've added something to the gospel. I just, like y'all know me well enough. I, mean, I, I you can see me. <laughs> I don't fit. 
I got a t-shirt for pastor appreciation last month that said something to the effect of, yeah, I'm a pastor. Um, and, and that came with a bottle of whiskey, too. So, I mean, there's, there's nothing about me as a pastor that you don't know. And probably not much is going to change about me, except for I hope I become a little bit more holy before I die. But my, my point being, I don't fit the mold, right? And sometimes I care. And other times I really don't care, you know? Sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons. So as I struggle my way through this passage, I'm just like bearing, bearing a bit to you and just letting you know, like, it's hard to find, at least in my life, it was hard for me to like self-evaluate and ask the Spirit, like, what, what really is there? Like, I, I don't fit the common mold of your typical Christian who like wears the suit and tie to church and got everything all cleaned up. I got tattoos, I got piercings, I wear my hair slicked back, I ride a Harley. I love things in terms of Christian freedom that others really don't like. I love them because I'm going to live life once, and the Bible ain't clear about some things. When the Bible is clear about things, I'll be clear about things. So I, that's who I am, right? It's part of how I'm wired. So when I'm thinking about, okay, where the heck is the legalism in my life? Because my view, my picture of a legalist is not me. I'm assuming you guys could relate to that, right? Wouldn't wouldn't that be the mic drop moment that I can't be the only one in the room that has a hard time seeing myself as a legalist? So I don't know what it looks like for you. <laughs> I just know what it looks like for me, and I'm fine confessing it. See, if legalism is the idea that Jesus plus something equals everything, I think it would be really hard to identify what the plus something actually is. What is the plus something for you? What is the plus something in your life? What is the present um, uh, like a, a positive behavior that you have? That's your resume of good things. Uh, well, what's, what's your list of the absence of bad things that, that you have? You may not talk about it in loud circles, but you know you got it, right? And if you don't, then... Well, you're different. Maybe you don't struggle with legalism. Fine by me. You and the Holy Spirit can spend some time afterwards. What, what does that list look like for you that lists out the presence of positive behavior and the absence of bad behavior that has become the plus something in your relationship with Jesus? And I can tell you this much. If you walk into the room in a church family, in a gospel community, in your own family, in relationship with others, and all you have is your list of the presence of things that you got that are good, and your list of the bad things that you don't got, you don't bring life transformation. You bring legalism. And legalism kills. Well, what is the plus something in your relationship with Jesus? Would you be honest enough and willing enough to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you on that? Would you spend time there or would you dismiss it? What would you do? Because the ball's in your court on that. I can't force you to go there. Remember, remember that for Paul in this text, the temptation would have been to boast in or to rely on his religious, ethnic, nationalistic, or educational credentials. It would have been easy for the Apostle Paul to boast in or to rely on his status as a Pharisee 
or rely on his fight to keep God's people pure from the filth of the world. We formed this church, God, would have been his prayer, and it sounds like a great holy prayer. Or he would have boasted and relied on his performance of religious rituals. On the flip side, I referenced this earlier, Paul would also live in fear and insecurity when his performance didn't match his self-composed resume. These would have been the plus somethings that Paul uh, would have been tempted to add to his relationship with Jesus, which would have made his relationship with Jesus null and void, like a check that had been written on an empty account. I would imagine, I would imagine for Paul this is a daily battle. I mean, none of us in this room has that resume. We all got resumes. I'm pretty sure it's a daily battle. I think that some of this was the underpinning of what Paul said in Romans 7. Described himself, and now some people want to argue theologically, well, Paul wasn't really talking about himself. That couldn't be true, because if that was true and Paul was talking about himself, then, boy, he really wasn't a holy man then, so how could he actually know God and be a preacher? Just go read it. Like, I don't care who he's describing. I think he's describing himself. That's what I think. Because then Romans 8 is so good. Romans 7, it's basically poor, pitiful me. I suck. I can't do this. All the good things that I want to do, I don't do. All the bad things I don't want to do, that's what I do. See, he's, he's laying out his resume in a way that, once again, eradicates any of his own fleshly ability to either earn or prove his salvation. And then in Romans 8, it starts with, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation. Like, I... That condemnation is not there because he earned it. And it's not there because he's proven it. It's there because Jesus put it there. That's grace. Grace transforms and legalism kills. While it may be hard to notice it, I wonder why it's so hard for us to notice it. Because it kills. Number one tool of Satan, legalism. So where do you find yourself relying on and boasting in your religion, your ethnicity, your nationalism? I honestly think that's probably, maybe not for you. I think for America, period, if, this was, if I was going to make a blanket statement, a blanket application for the American church, the biggest one right now I think is nationalism. That's the poison that we're getting fed every day. Listening to a, a SBC preacher recently who wrote a book about um, politics, and he also wrote a book about um, why you should or should not vote. He's got seven great questions in it. Um, yeah, I won't go too big of a bunny trail, but he, he made this statement. He said, you know, our, our, he goes, I wrote this book because my people are being discipled day in and day out by preachers in the media who are telling them what to do, and it's politics and it's nationalism, and it, we, are, we are saturated with it right now. And I am too. I've I got some rap music I've been listening to lately that I absolutely love because it's political in nature. His point was I, I want to disciple people with the gospel. The gospel brings transformation. I think nationalism is probably the facet of legalism that seeps its way into our lives the most. It's, le- it's least the biggest threat right now. You might be like, no, I'm pretty insulated from that. Okay, great. Good for you. But I think for most of us, this is probably the biggest threat we're facing right now from an outside-in look. <clears throat> so where do you see yourself relying on or boasting in your ability to stay clean from the world's filth or your 
fight to keep others pure, your performance of religious rituals? What is it in those categories that gives you comfort and security? Comfort, when you start asking comfort and security questions, that's when you start getting into heart idolatry rather than just mere information. When do you feel the most superior? What does your resume or your script in your pocket look like right now? What do you wish your friends and your family would file in between the dash of the dates of your birth and your death? Basically back to the beginning. My conclusion is short. My conclusion is short. The Apostle Paul wanted Christ, and he wanted Christ alone to occupy that dash between the dates of his birth and death. He knew that his man-made resume was absolutely worthless and that his relationship with Jesus was valuable beyond measure. He knew that the only way that the Philippians would live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel is if they relied upon and boasted in the truth that Jesus plus nothing, in fact, equals everything. He knew that the rubbish of their man-made resumes would need to die somewhere. Those resumes needed to die at the foot of the bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb in the light of the hope of eternity because that's where Satan's sin and the grave were defeated once and for all. Not over and over and over again, but once and for all. That's the place where legalism dies. That's the place where freedom comes alive. Amen? Pray with me. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. We we beg you uh, to do work with it. Take my feeble attempt at preaching it, um, knowing that I am an imperfect, sinful human. And so, um, Lord, we pray that you would take it and uh, do work in our midst. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.